spirit. Some people hear it. Some people hear it. Spirit. Some people just won't go near it. There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. www.sequelcast.com Hello and welcome to SequelCast. This is a podcast where we review movies one film at a time. We're in the middle of a Ghostbusters cycle. This episode we're going to cover Ghostbusters 2. And in an upcoming bonus episode we're going to cover the Ghostbusters animated series and some fan films and the recent Ghostbusters video game on PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Check out the website www.sequelcast.com Email us sequelcast at gmail.com You can... uh, Add subscribe to us on iTunes or check out the Twitter feed at sequelcast.com slash Twitter. This is your host, Uncle Milkshake, with Thrasher. Howdy. Jersey Jason cannot join us this week. Instead, we have a dear friend of ours for a long time. Mr. Old Dear Friend. No, it's a BJ, of course. Yes, and Mr. BJ. Mr. Yeah, BJ. I'll stick a little bit. Is there any other kind? <laughs> Hi, oh. Hey, oh. Um,. We're going to be covering, like I said, Ghostbusters 2, the sequel to the immensely popular Ghostbusters 1. This was also directed by Ivan Reitman and stars uh, pretty much all the people from the original. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, Ernie Hudson, and Annie Potts, but also features as the bad guy, this time around, Peter McNichol, a quirky character actor you might know from such films as Dracula Dead and Loving It. And well, he Dragon played pretty much the same character. Yeah, and Dragon Slayer. Was he also in Ally McBeal? Yes. Yes. That's, he's most well known for Ally McBeal, and I forget if he was as uh, Nebish in that show. So I I don't know if I'd call him Nebish. I would call him mincingly European. I would call him bulky from Perfect Strangers. <laughs> but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. BJ, what was your first exposure to? the Ghostbusters franchise in general, and uh, when did you first see Ghostbusters 2? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think I think I like a lot of people, at least they grew up in my time. You guys are a little bit older than I am. I didn't have a chance to see it in the theaters because, well, I was just being bored about that time. Um, so I, I saw it on, you know, bootleg videos off of HBO that somebody taped and gave to us. <laughs> um, I, I preferred, always preferred Ghostbusters 2, at least when I was younger, because uh, the terror dogs from Ghostbusters 1 scared the crap out of me. But uh, Vigo, Vigo is a lot more approachable of a villain, if you really want an approachable villain. But, I I mean, when I was younger, you know, I, like many a kid, had all the figures and growing up. I, I think I still have my toy proton pack up in the attic here. Cool. So how does that toy work? Does it shoot little Nerf gun balls, or...? Uh, it was probably one of the dinkiest... Well, there was a, a thing that shoot, shoot uh, shot little foam darts... Wow, I'm Porky Pigging it today. Um, but this thing kind of, it just had a like stream thingy that poked out of the front, and you pulled the trigger and it made a noise. But other than that, it just looked like a proton pack. Yeah, the thing that I found weird about that. had a trap to hang on it. Well, which is weird, because like, the trap didn't come out for, like I think, another two years. Uh, but then the other weird thing is like the noise it made sounded like a lawnmower starting up. It had no resemblance to the sound of an actual proton pack. <laughs> But you loved it anyway. You're just like, oh my god, it's freaking proton pack. 
Thrasher, what was your first exposure to Ghostbusters 2? Well, Ghostbusters 2, I was, oh gosh, this, let's see, this film came out in uh, 1989, so of course I was, I was about nine years, eight, nine years old at the time. Uh, it was, uh, it was a time where, of course, I didn't have an act, access to my own money or my own vehicle to see the movie, so, you know, I was a huge fan of the original Ghostbusters film, I was a tremendous fan of the animated television series, and when I saw Ghostbuster 2 was coming out, I'm like, oh wow, I really, really want to see this. But for whatever reason, we never actually went to see it. Uh, however, my older cousin, Melissa, did go see it with her boyfriend, so I would just sort of ask her endless questions about it. <laughs> and, and, sort of, and by the time it came on cable, which is when I finally had a chance to see the movie, I had kind of like learned everything about the movie from her. So you must have had a, a different movie in your mind from these third-party descriptions of Ghostbusters 2 than when you actually kind saw it. Of. Yeah, kind of almost what I imagined was almost like a hybrid between the original movie and the animated series. For me, I mentioned a bit of this on the last episode uh, with the original Ghostbusters. At this time, I lived overseas in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and the thing was, I can't remember whether I saw Ghostbusters 2 in a theater first or whether I saw the animated show because my grandparents would tape Saturday morning cartoons and mail them to me. And then I saw the uh, Ghostbusters 2. Regardless, I saw Ghostbusters 2 before the first one. I even I was in uh, first or second grade. I had a Ghostbusters 2 activity book where you could f draw a maze to let uh, Sigourney Weaver catch up with her baby Oscar, among uh, other fun activities. And what was that? Oh, there's a funny little... Um, I happen to be, uh, I, I watch for really goofy little things. The, the baby, uh, the two babies who played Oscar... Uh, their last name was given to Vigo in his description on the computer screen. Wow, that's a really nitpicky thing, but I uh, just figured I'd throw that out there. You talked about the baby. Yeah. Heint Dorschaschendorf? Yes. And Will Dorschaschendorf, <laughs> who played yes, Baby that, that was apparently Vigo's last name. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you oh, for no, that. No, but no, no. Go ahead. That's what the sequel cast is all about, interrupting. Send us an email, <laughs> sequelcast at gmail.com. Um, interrupt us with your emails. Yes. We'll, we'll drop the podcast and, and read them as we get them during the show. This and is I, live. And I updated the Twitter feed live saying we're recording Ghostbusters 2. So if any of my dozen followers want to <laughs> send me something, uh, I guess they can. So I will say that as a kid, I really liked Ghostbusters 2. With Ghostbusters 1, I had a problem with it being really episodic, but I think that's kind of the nature of this kind of story. Um... I feel like Ghostbusters 2, it almost feels like two different movies. All the stuff with uh, Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver is like a very typical romantic comedy with some light humor. That feels out of place with the highly nerdy scientific dialogue of uh, the rest of the movie. Well, you could almost say that about the first film when, when you see the, the banter between, uh, between uh, Sigourney Weaver's character and Bill Murray's character. Yeah, but I almost think that was on purpose. I think their Ghostbusters is very driven by the characters themselves and having very defined things. And I think Bill Murray's character is kind of of a romantic comedy character. I can see that. I mean, as far as with the women in the first one, you know, he was acting, doing the survey scene of people had psychic abilities, flirting with the girl at the beginning. And it is interesting how that works out. He's almost like his own character separate from the team of Ghostbusters 
Although, sadly, Winston is not given much to do. Well, he didn't exactly have much to do in the first film except for ground the team. And he does a certain bit of that in the second film. A little bit. Um, the beginning of Ghostbusters 2, I think, is really, really clever and realistic as far as what would happen to a, a team of Ghostbusters. Could it sustain itself economically as a business? Although the first shot of the movie is a slow zoom-in into a, uh, a crack in the sidewalk. And then from that crack comes bubbling, viscous, purple slime. Well, I think that... I. I think the the movies actually have a lot of a very almost a formula they kind of follow. They start off with a a kind of an everyday shot, but an ominous everyday shot, and then they go into you know they go into Sigourney Weaver and her everyday life and things like things of that nature. Just kind of you can see a yeah, lot of correlations. And of course, that that scene, that everyday scene, is we see a woman pushing her baby carriage, and this is of course Sigourney Weaver pushing baby Oscar's carriage, and they go over the slime. And she's got her groceries in one hand, and something must be up with that slime, because very shortly afterwards, the baby carriage comes to life and starts moving itself all up and down the street, eventually stopping in the middle of a busy intersection. It's a pretty neat scene, but um, the baby is something that really annoys me in the movie, which is too bad, because the baby is an essential central character to the plot. It's not like they made the baby talk with a demon voice or anything, but... I don't know, it just seemed too cute and pandering. Oh, I, I disagree. I mean, the baby, for the most part, is just a, is just a completely normal baby, and it's all about how the, the people react around it. I mean, you know, when Egon is around baby Oscar, he's very clinical. He's like a very serious doctor. Uh, when, when Peter's around it, when Peter Bankman's around baby Oscar, he becomes this, takes on the persona of a fun-loving uncle. Both because I think he does kind of have that kind of fun-loving uncle quality, but also because he he subconsciously wants to demonstrate to Dana that he can that he could be a decent parent. It I really he, the baby doesn't seem so much as a character to me as more of a plot device. Uh, he doesn't seem because you can't really develop any. It's hard to develop a character of a baby, especially that young, and so he's more of a, a tool there, uh, you know, to tell the story of. Oh, how are we going to bring the bad guy in? You know, what's what's the bad guy want? What's his minion want? I think the baby's more of a tool. They could have, they probably could have done it with something else, with like a little sister or anything. And you're right. Even the plot involving a sort of nerd getting possessed by a demonic force to wreak havoc in New York City is almost the exact same uh, plot from the original Ghostbusters. However, in this one, you sort of have the redemption of the okay so what happens to the different ghostbusters characters at the beginning of ghostbusters 2 yeah this game as as the title card at the very beginning says you know is five years later so uh since uh since dealing with gozer at the end of the first film uh the supernatural activity in new york has died down uh it's died down to the point where the ghostbusters simply were not able to operate as a profitable business and so Ghostbusting, the Ghostbusting franchise was shut down, uh, and the Ghostbusters went their kind of separate ways. Uh, Dr. Raymond Stans runs an occult bookshop. Uh, Peter Venkman hosts a cheesy uh, basic cable show about the paranormal where he interviews UFO abductees and supposed psychics. Uh, Egon is now working uh, 
as now working in a in a site in a lab doing experiments to uncover the secrets of human psychology, and which still has a very strong parapsychological bent. And we never really find out what Winston was up to, except that uh, Winston and uh, Stans have a side business where they appear as the Ghostbusters at children's birthday parties. And the children like of the party. The, the Ghostbusters song is it actually exists in the Ghostbusters universe? <laughs> yes, it, it means it means that either when the Ghostbusters were raking in a load of money, that either they commissioned Ray Parker Jr. to write a theme song for them, or that in this universe, Ray Parker Jr. was a huge fan of the Ghostbusters so much so that he wrote a song about them. <laughs> well, well, hey, we're you, Vanilla you, Ice. It worked for Vanilla Ice in the Ninja Turtles movies where he just randomly wrote a Ninja Turtles song. Go, Ninja, Ninja go, Ninja, Ninja, go. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, speaking of music, in this film you have a lot more licensed music uh, relating to Ghostbusters. A lot well, of rap, that, a lot of like late 80s, sty- early what, 90s style uh, family-friendly rap. Well, well you know what? In, in, uh, there was a real... There's a real uh, a strain in late 80s, early 90s, almost running up into the 2000s, uh, strain in films where every blockbuster film has to have a rap song that explains the film. And this movie has two of them. <laughs> well, I mean, the Adams Family movie. had MC Hammer do a song for them, right? And the second Adams Family had the Whoop, There It Is people really? do a special version of Whoop, There It Is. Yeah, Whoop, The Adams Family, There It Is. <laughs> I don't remember that one. We'll have to... wow, you were those lucky. Are some, those are some good films. but Okay, so in this you have Bobby Brown does one, right? Uh, yes, he does On Our Own. And the other Guess one? we're finally on our own. Okay, so I don't know the lyrics either. Well, I guess we're gonna have <laughs> to take control. Okay. Too hot. I can always cue it up on the music. They call the Ghostbusters and I in control. I actually I prefer the second rap song in that better than that one. I like the the spirit one. That one's much better, I think. Spirit. Some people hear it. Some people hear it. Spirit. Some people just won't go near it. I just imagined all three of us in like jackets with our heads back, hats backwards, and glasses on. No, no. We should be in Ghostbusters outfits with our hats on backwards, doing the craft number to that. And we pull out our proton packs, and it makes a laser light show. Well, why didn't they do that for the party? That would have been much more entertaining. They'd have pulled out the proton packs. Started doing a laser light show. That would have shut those kids off real quick. And you would have had a rapping, <laughs> and rapping Slimer. DJ Slimer would have come out with his hat on backwards, performing the number. <laughs> what was that, Slimer? <laughs> so in the current economic climate, they're not counting statistics of people that have stopped looking for jobs. What do you think about that? Oh, <laughs> BJ, surely you have something to say to Mr. Slimer. Uh, well, uh, what about Slimer? Oh, well, here's, I I actually I like what they did with Slimer in the second movie because uh-huh. they kind of bridged the gap between crazy Slimer from the cartoons and annoying menace from the first one. It's a bit dialed down. It's a bit dialed down from the cartoon, 
Yet he looks. They, they treated it much more like a character than as a as a just a, hey, it's the ghost. It's like hey, this is a thing you're gonna see. I guess because people expected to see Slimer, and so they they worked him in. But still not yeah. a major character in this time around. I'm amused by him driving a bus. Like he can't <laughs> keep food from passing through him when he eats it, but he can handle a bus. Well, you know what I like about that bus scene is that that that's that's Ralph Cramden. Like all I can see is Ralph Cramden in that bus scene. <laughs> he's got the hat. He's got the body type. He's got the attitude. Sure. God, Ralph Cramden. I've always mm-hmm. loved the the. Uh, I always thought the effects work for Slimer was really good, even in the first one. I that it's they didn't try. In fact, I love the effects works in both of the movies because there were some more advanced technologies at the time. That they could have accessed, but they chose to go with the more kind of home homemade feel of the the older uh, stuff. Well, he's an amazingly expressive puppet. In addition, you also have the effects of you have a scene where there's a possessed toaster that jumps around. Oh God! That's and that and, and it's it's a appears to be mainly improvised. Sadly, Ghostbuster Two is a movie that. Um, on DVD or Blu-ray, does not really have a special edition. There's no commentary or, or recent retrospective documentary covering the film. There is a DVD that has some bonus episodes as part of a two-pack with the first movie that has a few random episodes from the animated series. It does have the one that um that kind of covers how Slimer joins up with the uh with the Ghostbusters, which is kind of nice. If you watch that after watching Ghostbusters two, oh okay, I get a little. You kind of understand how they can work in Slimer. Fill in the backstory, right. And a, a writer for the first season or two of the animated series, and he was a produ- uh, sort of the head writer, was J. Michael Straczynski, who some of you listeners might know as uh, the writer and creator of Babylon 5, which is a pretty good sci-fi series from the 90s. Harlan Ellison had a hand in that. And uh, with that, we have put our... Uh, our necessary Harlan Ellison reference into this episode. Did he write for, or was he a consultant for Babylon 5? Well, he, he was, he, he, his official title was consultant, but he had a hand in a number of episodes. It, it might have been like a Writer's Guild thing as for why he doesn't have a specific writing credit. Interesting, but we're not talking about Babylon 5. We are talking about Ghostbusters 2. So the Ghostbusters, Ray and Winston do kids' parties but are unpopular because the kids want He-Man, which I think was a dated reference even at the time. Yeah, the He-Man reference that the, that of the kids shouting, we wanted He-Man, not the Ghostbusters, that, that is, was dated even when you know, this was, the movie was made. I, I can't help but I guess they wanted to go with a, with a cartoon franchise that, that people clearly would have heard of. I think it would have been much better, though, if it had been Ninja Turtles. Because that was the new thing at the time. That was the fast rising thing, and that was the franchise that would eventually, uh, that would eventually take over from the Ghostbusters. Well, I think it might have been a licensing problem. It might have been hard to. Uh, I can't. I don't. I don't think New Line was associated with Columbia at the time, so I'm not sure who had the. Because I know New Line had the. They had the light rights for Ninja Turtles. They put out the Ninja Turtle movies, but. Well, the thing, I don't think it's a rights issue because it's 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 a satirical cultural reference. But sometimes you still need to get the copyright from the company. I mean, uh, as an example, something about Mary had a line describing Matt Damon where they're like, oh, he's just like Pac-Man. He eats all them women up. And in the credits for There's Something About Mary, it says Pac-Man copyright 1980 uh, Namco. 
I only know that because I worked at the theater when something about Mary came out and had to watch the credits several times. But you just have to get the rights for something just to cover your ass, even if it's satire, even if it's a spoof sometimes. But yeah, Ninja Turtles would have been a better reference. Meanwhile, Bill Murray as Peter Venkman is hosting a weird show called World of the Psychic and uh, very, very funny scenes. Or, yeah, or I'm, psychic. Say, I'm, I'm glad that he came back to do that. Like, I know he doesn't like sequels, and yeah. and apparently that's one of the things that kept the movie from being made for a little while. Is they they he doesn't really like to do sequels, and I think what makes this good is it actually could stand on its own. Like you didn't you wouldn't have to build it as Ghostbusters two. You could call it like Ghostbusters Rise of Vigo or something, and and put it out, and and nobody would have to watch the first ones. I think it actually is a good self contained story. Right, and the beginning does that to help reintroduce the characters. I really like that Ray has his occult bookshop. It looks kind of like a, you know, like a gothic comic book store. Although I guess that's a bit of a well, it, it description. Looks, it looks like a lot of some of the swankier bookstores you'll see in New York, and that's actually something I really, really like about this movie. It is a real. It is just such a New York movie, like a Woody Allen film, and it, and I mean authentic New York movie. I don't mean I don't mean these really shallow these really shallow post nine eleven New York. Egon is he working for a laboratory for a company or for a school? I think he's back at the university they were kicked out of. Yeah, I assume it's a university. Because the whole beginning actually starts with a lot of shots of places that you see. Like you see the hotel from um, from the first movie. Uh, what that's when when uh, Ray and uh, Winston are driving by. You'll see the hotel, and you'll also see uh, Dana's old apartment building. Yeah, and is it the same sort of set from the first film? It looks uh, similar. I think it actually. I think it's supposed to be like a little like it's a little Easter egg thing. Hey, I know that place, and so I I do believe it's the same university that they got kicked out of originally. We'd probably have to see a screenplay to to know. So production designer or something. Um, it's well. Recently, well, so, Ghostbusters 1 came out on Blu-ray, and they were going to release Ghostbusters 2 at the same time, but delayed it because they wanted to do special features for a re-release of Ghostbusters 2 on DVD and Blu-ray, but that has not happened yet, and maybe they're waiting for a possible Ghostbusters 3, which we'll mention rumors about at the end of the show. Well, so we now have, we've now sort of, a, we've set up the main characters of the film, the four original Ghostbusters and Dana Barrett and her baby Oscar. So what brings these characters together and gets the Ghostbusters to start reforming? Well, as of course we mentioned with the baby carriage moving on its own, Dana Barrett has now had another inexplicable supernatural experience. So she contacts, she contacts uh, the Ghostbusters and asks them to, you know, they're the experts to, you know, come back into her life and then help her deal with what might be another supernatural threat to her safety and her child's safety. In the meantime, she hasn't seen Peter Venkman in a very long time. And one, one thing that this movie keeps going back to is that apparently Peter and Dana did attempt some kind of relationship between the two films, but that it fell apart, and then Dana uh, fell in love with a man from the orchestra. Uh, he fathered her child, and then he left, then he sort of ran off to Europe. Really? I thought Bill Murray was supposed to be the father. Oh, no, no. They, they spe- they, she gets pretty uh, specific that the, the, the father of the child was a musician. You don't think that's a cover? I guess it could be. I guess that's a stretch, though. But, but you know, why have that, that kind of thing in there and not resolve it? I don't think the themes of the film really would fit that kind of deception on her part. Right, it is a 
although it has moments of darkness, it is overall a fairly light um, sci-fi comedy action. I'm not sure what you'd call Ghostbusters. That's one of the cool uh, things. I call it sci-fi. Yeah, yeah it's sci-fi. Comedic sci-fi. So another thing that Sigourney Weaver's character does is she's taking painting lessons. Well, no, no. She uh, because she's now she has an infant to take care of. She does restoration taken, in a museum. Of- yeah, she's taken sabbatical from the New York Philharmonic. But since she does have an arts degree, she is assisting with the renovation of classical, the renovation, restoration, and preservation of classical buildings. Uh, classical buildings, no, of classical <laughs> paintings. You're yeah. reading out of the catalog for Scad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can feel that. Uh, and of course, uh, her so her her boss in charge of this whole thing at the museum is Janos. Dr. Janos Poha. Janos Poha. I'm a Janos, a Janos Poha, Diana. Peter McNichol lays it on really thick, which I think works in Dracula Dead and Loving It when he plays Renfield. Everyone is so over the top in that film. It's a very funny performance. But here, while I really liked his performance as a kid, um... He tries too hard, and I know the concept of Ghostbusters can be looked at as ridiculous, but there is a certain grounding in reality. With... Is all the characters are very, very real characters, except for him. He just inexplicably, he's like a uh, a, a, a not-all-that-funny-sketch-comedy character. Even Rick Moranis, as his ultra-nerd uh, character, has some level of reality to him, and... Uh, do you enjoy Peter McNichol, BJ? Uh, honestly, whenever I see him in anything, I I hear Janos in my head. <laughs> like, that's the kind of impression he made he made with uh, with Ghostbuster Two in my head. So I I can't take anything else seriously. I think he's like bulky from Perfect Strangers, or you can even make comparisons to like not as ethnic as Borat, perhaps, but. Well, you know, you know what I think this character is, uh, Rowan Atkinson. In uh, I believe it was uh, the series Blackadder the Third. There's an episode where he, where Blackadder is captured by the Spanish Inquisition, and he's locked in a cell with this Inquisitor who only speaks Spanish, and like they can only communicate by doing bad comedy routines and by by doing charades. And there's a scene where Rowan Atkinson he's strapped into this torture device, and he's just going down a list of sort of stock. Uh, stereotype characters, and he says, "Oh, and who's that? That funny little guy who's who's foreign, but he's not from anywhere in particular." That's what Janos is to me. He's that funny little man who's foreign, but not from any place in particular. I guess I look back on it, and to me, if he wasn't going after Dana so much, I'd be like, "Is that the token gay guy in the movie?" I, <laughs> I, I, oh. Yeah, it is kind of like that '80s gay stereotype where gay just sort of meant really weird and uncomfortable, you know? Well, he has sort of that, that mincing posture. But yeah, he sexually gets sexually interested in Dana, so... Which doesn't come off as believable. I mean, I guess it works as a creepy teacher or supervisor in a way, but Peter Nichol tries, he just tries too damn hard. Yeah, yeah. Although on this, on, on a different note, I don't. I think if they didn't go crazy over the top goofbally like that, I think it would have been a little too creepy for the Ghostbusters uh, feel. 
Like, if he'd have gone for a more, like, a dark, brooding, creepy guy, it may not have been as fun to watch. Well, maybe. I guess, I guess. well, you know what? His character is kind of a, a fish out of water. Just think of Tim Curry in this role. I could see oh, Tim God. Curry. That, oh, God. That was <laughs> Dana. That's not imagine, right. Could you imagine what would happen if we were to be wed, to be the parents well, of a little walking? Oh, Dana, can I have your old baby? Butler and villain, butler and villain. Well, you know what, though? If you're going to have Tim... The thing is, as a villain, no one outshines Tim Curry. So next to Tim Curry, Vigo would come off as a low-level threat. You would have to put... You would have to put Tim Curry in the role of Vigo. I think you'd have to have some... Just have somebody more intimidating. But you'd have to have, like, a big name. Like, at the time, you'd have to have, like, Rutger Hauer as Vigo. Ooh, huh. As, like, a muscle man? I could see that. Yeah, it's like a big scare. Like, wow, so he's not okay. like, ah, oh, look at me. I'm an old. No, like, I am a badass, somewhat German guy. Yeah, Fear cause, me. Cause Vigo, and if you couldn't get him, get Michael Ironside. so old. I'm going to have to take this fall. I'm sorry, but keep on going with the Ghostbusters. Okay. Well, well, while Uncle Milkshake's taking that call, I guess we ought to explain this film's uh, supernatural threat. Which is Vigo, the Carpathian, Scourge of Moldavia. The Sorrow of Carpathia. Yes. In, in the museum, there's this giant page, a painting, a portrait of a Carpathian, uh, of a Carpathian nobleman uh, named, named Vigo, who, as we find out through the film, uh, practiced black magic and you know, died a horrible death. And like, when he like, had this whole cryptic poem about how your know, death is but a doorway and that he would one day return. Well, it turns out uh, Vigo's soul is effectively contained within the portrait. And he's gathering supernatural energy so that he can transfer his soul into a, into a new body and thereby live again. And the new body he's chosen is the body of baby Oscar. And to facilitate acquiring Oscar for the soul transference, he uh, Vigo, you know, uses this lightning bolt mind control power to uh, to manipulate Janos into seeking out the child and acquiring it for him. Actually, some of the some of the Vigo slash uh, Janos effect scenes were were really good. Like I have to say that uh, my favorite one is when the blackout happens and they have and he's he's got the flashlight eyes. I love that shot. Oh yeah, yeah. They, once, once the two those two characters get bonded, there's all sorts of neat sort of supernatural effects. Like, like you know, there, there's a great scene where where Vigo's face kind of like the painting becomes three dimensional temporarily, and you know, whenever Vigo really wants to communicate, the the painting dissolves, and the painting itself becomes like a gateway into this temple dripping with with slime, with Vigo's head floating in it, you know, just shouting out orders. You talk about the slime, the slime kind of making its introduction, or when the Ghostbusters first run across the slime, they go to the site where uh, Sigourney Weaver's baby Oscar's uh, baby carriage started going haywire, and they go to the crack scene at the beginning of the film. And so they just start uh, somehow get a hold of high-powered uh, professional tools. Yeah, this is what I love. That's what I love about this scene. Like the Ghostbusters, like, oh well, there's there's something under this location. So rather than trying to get access to the sewers or the power lines or anything, they somehow acquire jackhammers and City of New York ro- road worker uniforms and start tearing up the road. 
And the hey, maybe accents, Winston works for the streets department. And the accents they put on in the scenes where they're trying to justify what they're doing is pretty. Yeah, it's so it's so weird. It's like the Ghostbusters. It's it's as if we're not watching the Ghostbusters. It's as if we're watching our favorite comedians from Saturday Night Live improvising a scene in the middle of the street. A sketch, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the Ghostbusters suddenly have these amazing accents, these amazing performances they can put on. And, and sort of maintain these fake characters as they're digging up the street. And once again, this is such a classic New York New York scene. You know, the boss coming us in and having us work on the weekend. <laughs> That's crazy or what? You know, hey Ziggy, yo, <laughs> yeah, Egon just going yo, yeah. and you know, like yeah, yeah man. The power songs. lines, and they're talking about how they're fixing the power lines. That's their cover story. And the guy's like, the power lines, and like the actual guy from New York, from like the New, from like from the police or whatever, is like, the power lines are over there. And what do they do? You idiot! The power lines are over there. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? <laughs> One of the things I always liked is that they, 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 the swearing is not always regular swearing. Like they, in that scene, like there's like, I have some diaper bag down. To, they always have. <laughs> different words. They're not always just some, you know, some asshole or something. They, they get creative with it. Yeah, it's and very I think much that like, makes it a little family friendly. It's very much like a Three Stooges thing. Uh, I was just looking on Wikipedia, and one thing it says, I don't know if this is true, is a uh, original title for Ghostbusters 2 was going to be Ghostbusters 2 River of Slime. I've heard that, too. I can't imagine they would have stuck with that. It's a bit literal. I don't... Well, they did name it uh, Episode 2 Attack of the Clones, so... <laughs> Send in the clones was the runner-up title for that one. Oh god! Or Jar Jar's big score. Actually, when they were filming that movie, the uh, joke title for it was Jar Jar's big adventure. Oh. <laughs> they had that on the clapboards during the filming of Star Wars Episode Two, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some episode on the show at some point. But oh. back to Ghostbusters, I love the look of the purple, almost purple-pink neon slime in the sewers of New York City. It's I don't know you guys, when I was a kid, I was always trying to figure out what substance around the house has that consistency. Because I always like to freak out my sister with it. Huh. We found um, Johnson & Johnson's No More Tears um, <laughs> air conditioner was the perfect consistency for the slime that goes in the bathtub. So oh. one time when my sister was bathing, I snuck in there and squeezed the bottle into the tub behind her and scared them. <laughs> Uh, oh man, it was great. Now this is when your <laughs> sister was seventeen, right? <laughs> no, no, my, my sister's about two years younger than I am. Oh, so when she was uh, twenty-three? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay. Okay. They were zany roommates. Uh, anyway, no, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's—I don't know if you'd call just purple slime Lovecraftian, but there's something otherworldly about how it can form tentacles and a creature with a mouth when it comes out of the bathtub. Oh, yeah, the, just that life of its own that it has. I mean, the first movie had good special effects, but this one definitely has better special effects. They outdid themselves on this one. That's true. They do some amazing stuff with that slime. Well, I think one of the things that they didn't have to worry so much about creature effects, uh, so it... It, so it kind of let them be a little more interesting on the others. So there's no stop motion in this one, really, huh? Uh, actually, there is. Uh, in the big supernatural freakout towards the end of the movie, where we see all these ghosts and creatures and supernatural happenstances, that big that big uh, arch near the governor's bridge, 
the this titanic ghost starts coming through it, that is a stop motion ghost. But the first one had more extensive stop motion with the uh, dog uh, creatures. Oh yes, and, and so forth. Um, so when they get the slime, Ray gets a sample of it, and they gotta pull him back up because the uh, rest of the Ghostbusters are pretending like they're construction workers, as we mentioned before. Completely oblivious so, to the fact that, that there's tentacles coming out of a river of slime underneath New York trying to grab Ray. Like, I'm wondering why, why Bankman would be out there, but Winston is not helping them. I think I think they explained their... Okay, like, all right, Winston, our plan is we're going to dress up like New, like New York City street workers, and we're going to tear up tear up the street to get to some some crazy thing buried underneath it. And I bet I bet his response was, "You have got to be kidding me." Well, I also, this being off. New York, if you would have had a black man on the scene, would the cops have come that much sooner? <laughs> he oh. would have been a construction worker, though. That's true. I, yeah, I guess that's true. So, if he had been standing around and Egon had been uh, ha- jackhammering, <laughs> then people would have asked questions. Ah, uh, racism. You can laugh about it because it's it's funny. I love the little tentacles um, that they they have like coming after Ray. Little, uh, I guess they're little puppet things. Or they're they're really creepy. They look like something out of a hentai. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, stop motion, maybe, but. No, I don't think it was stop motion. I think they actually, they probably had some sort of like wires or something that they that they just stuck up through through some actual goo and just superimposed it on the scene. That, that's what I suspect anyway. But but that scene where you see that river of slime, the tendons coming out there, that would be a perfect effect for a Shoggoth if you were to do a Mountains of Madness film. I'll tell you, I, I'm actually, one of the things the movie got me interested in, I'd like to know about this, this pneumatic transit system. Did yeah, they yeah, actually run on pneumatics? That's actually one of the other cool, very New York things about it. The River of Slimes floating through the old pneumatic transit system, which was the precursor to the modern subway. So what does pneumatic mean? A pneumatic uh, usually is used with tools. It's either air pressure powered. Wow. So I'm, I, I don't know. That's why I'm trying to figure out how they have a transit system based on it. Or is it something they just called that, you know? <laughs> It may have just been called that because it was, you know, carts being shunted through tubes. Uh, I will admit I'm not as well versed on the history of that antiquated transit system as I should be. <laughs> I'm going to have to do some more research on it. I'm just, I, it's, yeah, after watching the movie over again uh, yesterday and today, yes, I watched it both days um, because I, I would really like to know some more about it. Because we don't have subways here. Yeah, and here, uh, or. BJ, I don't know if you know this, but I've been living in Portland, Oregon for the past four years. Yeah, and, I heard you up that way. And it's a, it's a really wonderful um, city and everything, but we, we don't have a subway. We have a light rail system that goes above the ground, but it functions just like a subway. But there's something separate from the um, light rail that is a slower, older-fashioned light rail that's almost like the cable cars in San Francisco. I guess the closest thing we have here is the the streetcars, uh, which are you know all electric, just like the ones in San Francisco. But they don't run everywhere; they only run on a couple of the main touristy areas. Exactly. Uh, nothing like a beignet at Cafe du Monde. I tell you, actually, um, if you're ever down here, and it's a, a better than going to Cafe du Monde because you got to fight the uh, tourists there, is you go to this little place called Morning Call, and that's kind of a, like a local place for ca- uh, coffee and beignets. Oh, BJ, did you take us there when we were in town? I may have. Hmm. I don't Sounds know. 
Sounds absolutely delish. I'll have to take you up on that at some time. And I have to take you all up on the next scene in Ghostbusters. <laughs> because, of course, the Ghostbusters have impersonated New York City officials and have done a tremendous amount of damage to the streets of New York. So what happens? They're put on trial uh, and in New York Circuit Court. And that's when we learn that Louis Tully is now their, uh, the Ghostbusters' personal lawyer. Yeah, Rick Moranis is their He's attorney. He's an accountant and a lawyer. He's a what? Accountant and a lawyer. Accountant so and a lawyer. He was a CPA in the first half movie. Right. And um, it's a, this is a pretty funny scene. I feel it goes on for a bit too long. But... You know what struck me as weird about this whole the whole court scene? Winston is there in the beginning and suit. probably some of the trial, and then he's not there to help bust the ghost. Exactly. Well, you know what? I think what it is is he was there as a, he was just there as moral support, but you know he wasn't with them digging up the streets, so he's not charged. And when the go, when the paranormal stuff starts going crazy, or no, or even before the paranormal stuff starts going crazy, when it looks like the Ghostbusters are going to be found guilty, he just decides to sneak out the back and keep his dignity. Maybe maybe he was being heroic and like helping get everybody out of the courtroom while they were fighting the ghosts. Uh, and there were only so many proton packs. That's also true. They're very expensive. Not a yeah. toy. Not a toy well, for kids. No, no, my question, though, why, why, where were the proton packs this whole time, and why did the court confiscate them? Because they didn't have the proton packs when they were digging up the streets of New York. Uh, but I realize for plot convenience, the, the, the ghost-busting equipment has to be there. Didn't but... the city take seize all their ghost-busting equipment? I think they they took whatever was in the the vehicle uh, when they when they arrested them. Right. Okay. Yeah. Why didn't, they, yeah, take, that would why didn't they take it underground? I guess would that weight have been too much for the cable they had? Although well, Dan Aykroyd. Really, well, they don't know what's underground. They don't know what's. They don't know what the river of slime the is. That probably wasn't big enough. There, it would have been no point to bring ghost busting equipment that would just weight you down, especially if there would be nothing to bust down there. Those are all very good points. Uh, so one of the uh, bits of evidence they have in the trial is a canister of the slime they collected from underground. And uh, one of the witnesses says, oh, the Ghostbusters put it there, put it in the sewer. I never saw nothing like this in no sewer. Yeah, that's one thing that I noticed is how quickly New York seems to have turned on the Ghostbusters. Because at the end of the first film, they're big damn heroes. But by this film, people don't like them. And not only that, but like the, the court refuses to acknowledge the existence of ghosts. I'm curious where the uh, judicial restraining order comes in to stop them from busting ghosts. Apparently that's one of the reasons the equipment were seized, is that they were violating a, a, a judicial order to not have the access to this equipment. There, yeah, there is some reference to that. I'm also curious, what has been happening to the containment grid since then? Is like Egon living in the firehouse? Well, well, I, I've actually done some thinking about that, and, and I think, what I think is that after they defeated Gozer and all the supernatural energy dried up, that they just never caught enough ghosts to justify setting up a containment grid again. And also the operating costs from month to month, all the electricity, all, you know, whatever that fusion power or nuclear power or whatever that thing ran on to keep it operating be very very expensive but it, it, it is quite wonderful 
There's a point the judge gets so angry when he's sentencing the Ghostbusters. He gets oh, so a, wonderful scenery chewing in that scene. Oh yeah, the, he's drooling. His face is bright red. You see veins almost popping out of his neck, and as he gets angrier, they notice the uh, the sample of slime seems to bubble and get bubble and bubble and bubble as he gets angrier. So the Ghostbusters soon starts to overflow. Yeah, the Ghostbusters try to piss him off. And the slime overflows. Let's loose a ghost, or it activates. It lets two loose. Ghosts. No, the slime lets releases two ghosts. As the way he, he said it, it's the Scolari brothers. <laughs> yes, yeah, the the two the ghosts of the Scolari brothers, who were a uh, <clears throat> who were a pair of uh, a pair of of, of uh, convicted murderers that that judge gave the death sentence to, and now they're back for revenge. And so you get a wonderful hero moment where uh, the three main Ghostbusters, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis, put on their proton packs and uh, go to town. Well, this is after they're like, you know, you've got to do something. Well, I don't know, Judge. There's a restraining order saying we can't use our equipment, and they get the judge to drop all the charges first. Then they well, must have I'm curious about is he had already he had already pronounced sentence, or he'd already, you know, convicted them and pronounced sentence... How theoretically he couldn't just drop the case because the case was already closed. Well, he never said case closed, uh, <laughs> and and I guess you know he he could reopen it and change his ruling. And w- wouldn't it be illegal for him to say something about burning them at the stake? Isn't that like a disrespectful? Well, well no, that's what he said he would do if we lived in a time of purer justice. He didn't say he would actually do that. He just said he wanted to do that. But so anyway, like threatening them. Yeah, yeah, freaking judge. Uh, but yeah, so finally, finally, we get to see some real ghost busting in this movie. Thirty minutes in, I might add. Yeah. Now, is oh, that is that about the same time that we get to see the first uh, ghost bust in in the original movie? Uh, yes. You bring up a good, yeah. You're right. You're quite but, right. I mean, that also you, there's like a little formula going on there. I, but you know what? It works and it makes for a good contained story. It's also how movies used to be made, though. Right? I mean, they took longer to establish the plot and the characters before going right into the action. Yeah. <clears throat> then Robert McKee came by with his inciting incidents and everything changed. Well, that's not just Robert McKee. It's also, um... There's a book called Screenwriting or something by Sid Mead. And Aristotle had three acts and, you know, that they got structure from him. So it's not just Robert McKee, but... He certainly didn't help things. What there's a there's a screenwriting theory called the Whammo, where you need a big action set piece every ten pages, every oh, ten that's minutes. Terrible. Yeah. I bet that's how that's how bad movies get made. Oh, one thing I do want to say about the uh, the Scolari brothers, these these two freakish ghosts, the fat Scolari brother, that costume is actually reused in Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions as this illusionary ghost that uh, hmm. faces down Scott Bakula. Pretty cool. Too bad that never got a sequel because that was supposed to be part of a franchise. Yep, yep, yep. If wishes were fishes, I'd be a trout. Okay. So, more Ghostbusters 2. Um, one reason why we're making a lot of tangents is Ghostbusters 2, I don't think it's horrible. But it doesn't have the same magic as the first one, and whether it's because it's not the same time, it's, it's, you know, it's not the first time anymore, 
or the repetitive nature of the plot compared to the first film? I don't. I mean, what are some big weaknesses that jump out overall? Well, let me think. Well, I guess I I don't know. It, I was when I first saw this film as a kid, I actually was very disappointed in it, uh, and I actually hadn't seen it for I think possibly over ten years. And then my girlfriend got me the Ghostbusters double box set, and we watched it together. And now watching it as an adult, I like it a lot more. There's more things that I pick up on. I really like the character. Oh, excuse me. I guess I really like the the character interrelationships. I'm not willing to say this. Well, I guess guess the only real thing I would consider a flaw is that the threat in this movie isn't apocalyptic. I mean, what's, what happens if Ego that's, gets his way? He possesses a That's baby. the same thing I was actually thinking. Is yeah. It's not as epic of a journey. Yeah, yeah. It's not an epic as epic of a journey. It's still rewarding in its way, and I still love seeing these characters, but that I guess that's the only, that that's really the only area for me where it falls short. The stakes don't never seem high enough. It's almost like this is like a, a character movie as opposed to the action movie that the first one kind of delivered on. Th- that's it. Yes, this movie is all about the characters. I never thought of it that way, but I guess you're right. That is a good point. You have a lot more of their relationship between Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver. And Sigourney Weaver, I never thought looked very attractive. She has a very large get head. Out. Leave get out now. Leave. Okay. Don't you dare yeah, say I, that. I mean, come on. She took on how many aliens? And still kept her girlish figure to, to attract Peter Venkman? And that was just in the alien seduction scene in Alien Resurrection. Uh, you know, I've I you actually know never that. seen all of that one. You, you know what? It has its uh, moments. Speaking of Sigourney Weaver and her body, of course, you know, all, all of us who, who enjoy science fiction will remember her stripping down to her skivvies in Alien, uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. But there's something i got to say, like, there's a scene uh, where this is the second supernatural occurrence that to to affect oh, Oscar. The, she's she's in the bath. Yeah, yeah, she's running a bath for Oscar, and she's taking and she's taking Oscar's you know you know taking Oscar's romper off, and she's like, oh, mommy's gonna take her shirt off too, and she takes her shirt off. Which, admittedly, yes, that could happen while bathing a child, but it's just like, oh, good, Sigourney Weaver's in a sci-fi movie. We get to see some action. But it, it, she's not topless, mind you. She's wearing oh, a no, bra no. and uh, underpants. No, no, she's she's in a she's in a very sensible uh, silk blouse, silk underblouse. I think. It's a brassiere. It's got the the telltale lines of yes. There, there's my costumer in me pop, popping out. I thought her Ghostbusters. That's not the only thing popping out during the scene. Yeah, I thought her Ghostbusters were about to pop out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd like to breach that containment grid. She calls the one on the left huh. Egon. Okay, so... Oh, Lord. So, of course, the real purpose of that scene, though, is while the water's running, the, the, the slime that we saw, the pink slime, starts to fill the bathtub, but then the bathtub comes to life, and this giant snapping maw made of slime tries to tries to eat the baby. So, of course, now she's like another part to me she can't go back to. I thought it was a hand? Yeah, and to me, it looked more like a big slimy hand. Kind of like, you remember the episode of the of the animated series where they're covered in that goo? Sure. And they can't get it off, and they kind of, it kind of looked like something of that, like a hand or... Like he was trying to grab the baby and take the baby as a put... And then 
Can you imagine the the baby's in the slimy hand, and then the bathtub is skittering, skittering across the the, the street? <laughs> it kind of reminded me of a scene from a, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, a Freddy Krueger kind of film. And uh, I don't know if it's the slime or because it's something happening in a shower. Isn't there one of those movies where like the shower heads attacker, or is that Poltergeist or something? Or I actually have never seen the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Uh, I would. Freddy used to scare the bejesus out of me when I was younger, and I just uh, never seen him since. Yeah, I don't know, actually. Okay, I guess I'm shooting blanks on that one. Um, so the the slime is making more of an attempt to go after the baby yet again. But Peter Vankman, the Bill Murray guy, comes over to Sigourney Weaver. No, no, oh, no. Uh, Sigourney Weaver runs fleeing from her apartment like she does every movie. <laughs> and, you know, she goes she, she goes to the only safe place she can find. She goes the only place where she feels safe, which happens to be Peter Venkman's bachelor pad. And once again, we get to see Peter Venkman kind of, like, being the fun uncle, but also kind of showing, showing these kind of parenting skills as he helps her take care of Oscar and sort of gives them shelter while the Ghostbusters are going to try to figure out what's going on with the bathtub. Which I think is more three men and a little baby than Ghostbusters, but it's a baby in the movie. I mean, what else are you supposed to do than make stinky diaper jokes? Well, he only makes one, and it's still done in that very natural, fun uncle kind of way. Well, what's weird is at that time, the Ghostbusters were already, you know, back in business. So why wouldn't you just go to the Ghostbusters headquarters, where obviously all four of them would be there and much safer? They might have been closed. It was the middle of the night. Oh, and actually, once we get the once we get the notion of of, of Dana and Oscar staying in Peter's apartment, uh, Peter does to help Dana relax. Just takes her out on a date, and then we get one of the one of my favorite sort of running scenes. Uh, Janine and Louis Tully end up babysitting Oscar, and this romantic subplot between the two characters uh, starts up. And it's just I'm hilarious to see that way, not the Egon Janine thing. You're right. In the first one, it was Egon and Janine. I, uh, our regular co-host, uh, Jersey Jason, who was uh, fell ill, could not make it for this episode, had one thing for me to pass along, which was he thought Janine was really, really sexy in this movie compared to the first. Oh she's yeah. She's in that leopard outfit, and um, doesn't I she think have the more? Hair is a little weird. Like it just looks too much like a wig. It looks too much like a cartoon character. Maybe that's in response to the animated show. I don't know. I suspect so. I mean, she looks Probably. just like the cartoon character. Ghostbusters. Yeah. But Rick Moranis and Annie Potts are very funny as those characters. They do a lot of... Um, what is it? Don't they watch Citizen Kane? Well, they, they watch they watch some movies and they like make out on the couch and they <laughs> swap. Uh, and like, like Janine kept like, you know... You know yeah, but you know, they're in their 30s and 40s. Yeah, they watch some sort of movie. They also have this whole crack about how, like, you know, about how, like, you know, the, the baby got hungry and, and he didn't want to go to sleep. Oh, and then we, then we fed him some French bread pizza and he passed right out. <laughs> Just a great little gag. Now, French bread pizza is pretty rock hard in my experience. That's the joke. Pretty hard for a baby to eat it. I guess, did they chew it up beforehand and spit it into the baby's mouth? No, they're not birds. The bread. Um, I suppose he could. Eat, it depends on. Uh, I guess it depends on the French bread or the 
or the baguette that you use. Uh, I know, man, like you go to Subway and it's just that bread is just not very crusty. So it probably would make decent French bread pizza. Don't let the French hear you say that. So I want to mention ah, I, we've been going on for over an hour about Ghostbusters 2. And we've only got, what, a third of the way? Into yeah, the so we should start trying to push uh, push ahead a bit more. Let's get into Ghostbusters hustling. Okay, so once again, supernatural occurrences are skyrocketing. Uh, you know, the, the Ghostbusters, the uh, they, they discover that the slime is, is it's a psychoreactive slime. Like, it's sort of a physical manifestation of emotions, and it, and it, and it, and it sort of reacts to emotions. So if you exhibit positive emotions around the slime, it reacts positively. If you react, if you have negative emotions around the slime, it reacts negatively. You know, doing things like poltergeist phenomenon and summoning ghosts. One of the things they do to demonstrate like a positive effect of it is they put some slime on the toaster and play uh, and play uh, the song uh, "Higher Love, and Higher," "Higher and Higher" by Gary Jackson, Carl Smith, and Reynard Minor. And every time and I it hear the that song. Band. Yeah, and it makes I think the toaster of that scene. That's a funny little scene. It is. Actually, I think I think of the other scene that involves that song when I hear that song. Well, we'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that. No, I think it seems great. You know, there seems to be a lot of improvisation. It seems to be more of the tone of the first. The first movie felt more loose. This one seems a bit more tightly scripted. Now, I like one one of the things I think that the scene. I'm trying to figure out, you know, how they imply that Egon is sleeping with the slime. <laughs> how the <laughs> hell does that work? Is no, it, well, I guess, like, they, they probably put it in a jar next to you, and you just oh, go to sleep. Yes, but that wasn't the implication that they gave that kind of sleeping with the well, slime. And then uh, Winston says it's always the quiet ones. <laughs> that's just, that's just the way Peter's mind, mind works. I thought it was Egon and Ray were sleeping with the slime, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in Menage Slime, if it were. Oh, oh. Uh, oh, that's a horrible <laughs> image in my head now. Thank you, Uncle Milkshake. You're welcome. That'll be in the Ghostbusters porn. I'm sure there is one. We'll have to find Go- it. Ghost busted or Ghost Busty or something. Ghostbusty um, 2, River of Sly. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, oh. Tying it back, tying it back. <laughs> I bet you'd like that. Oh, yeah. So, anyway. Uh, so, th- so, anyway, they uh, during the course of... Uh, of you know investigating Dana's happenstance, they they go into the museum. They meet Janos. They take a bunch of pictures of Vigo the Carpathian. And God, that's a, a great scene. Oh yeah, yeah. That's one of the also, best. Sick him, Ray. Hey, did you? Oh yeah, and Peter. Destroy me! Destroy me! That, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so a lot of pictures of something. I start saying that. <laughs> yes, it's a good quotable scene. So finally, um, P, uh. I'm sorry, sorry, uh, Ray and Egon are in the, the Ghostbusters photo lab, and they're finally developing the photos. And when we reviewed uh, the first Ghostbusters film, we talked about how they use a lot of neat occult terminology, you know, some of it you know, very, very accurate. And this shows up in this scene again. They actually specific, specifically refer to Curly and Energy showing up in the photographs. And, and Curly and Energy photography was, and to a certain extent still is, a major part of... Uh, major part of, of parapsychological research, but sadly it's also a part of a lot of modern uh, modern superstitious hokum. Uh, but the short of it is they're developing these pictures, and the pictures start showing like different scenes and start showing the river of slime and these bloody palaces. 
And that's when uh, Egon and, and Ray really know, really realized that this this painting could be the source of a lot of the supernatural mischief going on. And but before they realize that though, they're just talking about what they're going to get for dinner. And there's just a hilarious back and forth. The two guys figuring out what they're going to have. Thai? No, Thai is too spicy. Mexican? No, we had that last night. Chinese? Man, and they kind of like narrow down. Pizza? Yeah, we can do pizza. Well, Chicago style or Jersey style? It's just this hilarious back and forth they have. It's so real. What is Jersey style pizza? I know Chicago style pizza is where you have um, the toppings, the cheese goes on top, and it's no, it's cheese and then toppings okay. on top and tomato sauce last. It's kind of like rest. a pie, like Jersey. Well, like, yes, Chicago style is like a pie. And then like Jer- I think it's like Manhattan style, where it's like the big giant floppy pieces you fold in half to shove them in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. It's like New York style, you know. Yeah, yeah. But before, but of course, that that all comes to an end when the paintings start catching on fire, and that's when they realize, holy crap, this portion of Vigo the Carpathian must be what's causing all these shenanigans. So I'm, I'm wondering, why was there no fire extinguisher in the photo lab? There are dangerous chemicals in there, and there's no fire extinguisher. Like, you have to wait for Winston to come in and save the day. Well, you know what? He, well, here, there's two possible explanations. One... A ghost moved the fire extinguisher. Or two, Winston was had just come back from getting all the fire extinguishers filled. Or they just they needed some way to work Winston in again because there was nothing else for him to do. But once again, he's the hero. I you know that's one of the things I like about Ghostbusters. They have the token black guy, but he's not dying in the first few minutes of the movie. That's true. The voice of reason and saves the day. So the ghost while. Uh, Peter Venkman is going on a date. The rest of the Ghostbusters go back underground and along the old pneumatic uh, rail system and see a frightening ghost train. Yes, it was a train that, that had derailed and killed all the passengers. As opposed I, I'm sure to... they still did not go back and get the packs. Good point. No excuse that, that time around. They knew like, there was they no knew excuse. Like They were going to do it, and then the ghost train... That would have made me even more go, let's get this freaking woman to be Why did they bring one to begin with? That's my question. Is why didn't at least bring one? It couldn't encumber you that bad that you could bring one. Who who knows? <laughs> so eventually I, I the, guess uh, that's the in me. Eventually Peter McNichol gets super possessed by um Vigo. Vigo. Well not super possessed, super mind controlled and empowered. And in a scene that makes very little sense, even in a Ghostbusters film, Janos looks like a ghost, kind of like uh, the the witch in Wizard of Oz. Well, he's dressed like an old-timey British nanny. It's kind of like, yeah, it's very European. And goes so to steal, uh, Oscar gets lured onto the uh, windowsill, window and Sigourney Weaver happens to be at home, but uh, Rick Moranis and Annie Potts don't want to leave. Because they still want to kiss and canoodle. And goodness knows they don't have their own apartments where they can do that. I guess she's got too many cats and he just lives in a weird, lonely, lonely, nerdy guy's apartment. In the first <laughs> film, he lived across the apartment, across the hall from Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, but I have a feeling that that place was pretty well destroyed. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't live there anymore. I don't think he lives there anymore either. So the, scene, that the scene of the baby uh, crawling outside on the, the ledge I think is kind of creepy and Sigourney Weaver tries to get the, the child and screams, no! When um, 
Peter McNichol steals it. It was steals it with his Mr. Fantastic stretcho arms. Uh, yeah. Which is also incorporeal. Yeah, he he manifested some freaky ghost superpowers in that scene. They could be projecting a ghost image, and maybe yeah, I guess was... it could be actually projecting. But still, it seems a bit of a stretch. So, what happens next? Well, they realize that oh, great, you know, Vigo's kidnapped the child. He's he's going to use it to get to. He's going to use it to reincarnate. We better stop him. So the Ghostbusters head out uh, after. Well. Well, first, there's a hilarious scene where the Ghostbusters, covered in slime, interrupt uh, Peter Bankman and Dana at the restaurant, and uh, and they get to see the mayor again. Yeah, and they go to see the Is mayor again. Always the mayor in a, like every New York movie. Yeah, could be. Like, he's usually the mayor or the governor of New York, and he's usually involved in a disaster. Like I've seen that guy a number of times. What the also, mayor. the actor that plays his assistant has been in tons and tons of '80s uh, movies. He's a but great tr- douchebag character. Like I character can't book. recall his name, but he's been in. But they tried to uh, they try to explain to the mayor, you know, what's going on, you know, about the river of slime and all how it's absorbing all of New York's negative psychic energy and releasing all these ghost phenomenon, and and it's really upsetting. You're seeing as how they saved the world in the first film. It's really upsetting that the current administration in New York discounts everything they say. And they're proving to now be an embarrassment to the mayor. And so the mayor, he tell, the mayor tells his aide to do something about him. And the mayor's aide gets all the Ghostbusters committed and sent to a mental institution. Actually, I don't think the mayor knew what was happening because he seemed extremely surprised when he found well, out. Well, no, he, he didn't know that the Ghostbusters were committed. He just told the aide to deal with it. He probably meant, you know, t- kick them out of my office. I mean, think of all the property damage they must have caused in the first and uh, even, you know, up to that point, the second film. Yeah, I think they, well, they mentioned that when they were digging in the street about being sued by like, all these people for money from that. But, of course, nobody ever paid them for the, the, the whole job, so they, it should have just been written off as even. Yeah, yeah. It did kind of save the city even after summoning the 50-story tall marshmallow man. Well, to be fair, someone was bound to pick a destructor for him eventually. So From what I'm saying, it's suppo- it can only be the people who witness Gozer arrive. So it had to be one of them. So things go batshit in New York City. Oh, boy. Well, oh, it's got, this has got one of my favorites. My favorite creature in the whole thing is the mink coat that comes alive. <laughs> I oh, love yeah. that. I like that the woman was not even looking, and she walks right into the puddle of slime. I mean, how full of yourself can you be to not... Oh, that's some goo. I probably shouldn't step in that. Well, I don't know. Who hasn't stepped in dog shit before? Uh, well, yeah, that doesn't... that Dog shit can blend in compared to True. neon pink slime on the concrete. <laughs> <laughs> What's this red puddle of blood doing here? I'm going to walk right through it. Yes. yes. We, we do get we do get to see some awesome stuff, you know. We get you know we see you know ghosts getting released everywhere, causing all sorts of mischief. And at one point, the ghost of the Titanic pulls into the harbor in New York, and all these ghosts come out of it. And oh, then we see Cheech we see these harbor workers, including one played by Cheech Marin, who just kind of looks up, sees the Titanic. Well, better late than never. And of course, you also had Ben Stein as one of the assistants in the uh, in the mayor's office at that point too. Oh yeah. There's some good little cameos in this movie, too. So there's so much chaos in the city, the Ghostbusters have decided they know positivity works against the slime. 
Well, well, the mayor, the mayor, seeing how outright chaotic things have gotten, it finds he finds out the Ghostbusters were committed, so he has them busted out. Uh, he, he has them released from the institution so that they can uh, deal. Since they're the only people who can deal with the supernatural craziness. Now, I've seen the doctor, the, the guy who plays the psychiatrist there before. That's Bill I, Murray's brother. Is that him? I, he looks like Brian Bill Murray. Doyle Murray. Yeah, he shows up in a few projects. Well, the first thing the Ghostbusters... Time to bust some ghosts. Yes. Well, the first thing the Ghostbusters try to do is they go to the museum, because I know that Vigo's portrait is the epicenter of all this. They go to the museum. However, the museum's been covered in a protective shell of the psychoactive slime, and their proton packs can't put a dent in it. Which is another really quotable scene. Oh, man, it looks like a giant jello. I hate jello. There's always There's always room for jello. There, there definitely were some great quotable scenes in this in this uh, sequel here, and and of course, there's all the people in New York. There's a Statue of Liberty scene. Yeah, they realize that, oh, that the psych, the slime's negative. The slime is negatively charged. The only way they can break down the slime is with positive psychic energy, and and they need a symbol of all that's good in the world, and that is the Statue of Liberty. I see. I figured out why that happens. Remember how I said it was a formula. Well, about this time in the other movie is when the when the, the marshmallow man starts to show up. You, you have to have a giant thing walking yeah. down the streets of New York to make it a Ghostbusters movie. An eighty foot head cotch. <laughs> Ghost Chases Three, written by J. Prescott Sherman. Well, well, well. I think I'll put a link of that scene on the Twitter feed. It's pretty Good. great. So yeah, the Ghostbusters, and I guess at this point it's unclear. Do the Ghostbusters like commandeer the Statue of Liberty? Do they let anyone know what they're doing? Uh, they probably did. They may have said so. They had to have gotten unless they whipped out Ecto Six or whatever it was, or their little tugboat, and got out there. They probably had to have somebody bring them out there. They probably got helicoptered out or something. Yeah. So the, yeah, so what they do is like they they rig the interior of the Statue of Liberty with speakers. And they coat the inside of the Statue of Liberty with slime from the new slime blower packs. And Which they hook my up favorite invention. The air called Ghostbusting Technology. I love that one. And then they wire the whole thing to this control panel made from an, the old deluxe Nintendo Entertainment System controller. Yeah, which would be the advantage. Yes, would be the first time anything like this would happen in a film, and I'll talk about other appearances later. Uh, and then they start playing. Uh, they start playing higher and higher. And it, I like that the, the big fancy energy. system they had set up, but they used a regular Walkman to play the music on. It's all Egon's improvised tech. I love it. And this, and and just like the made the toaster dance, it animates the Statue of Liberty. And they 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 take a giant walk. They make the Statue of Liberty walk and go walking down the streets of New York to the museum. And it being New Year's and you know a big patriotic symbol. It starts generating a tremendous amount of positive energy, thus weakening the uh, the slime. Weakens the slime shield so the Ghostbusters can pass through. Yeah, they they zip down. They they zip down on zip cords. No and one's I will say it enough to be able to do that kind of repelling on a on a, ba- on, a on any basis. But I think that's part of what's so fun about the characters is they they do things that if you look at them they wouldn't do be able to do because it's in their line of work. Well, in my time, I guess I've seen bears do things that even a bear wouldn't do. So the showdown with Vigo, how does it compare to the showdown with Azul? It's not as tense. 
I mean, it's it's a lot of them. You know, it's a lot of a baby being telekinetically moved around. It's a lot of Yonos, Yonos doing his shtick. It's a lot of Dana screaming. The Ghostbusters actually spend most of this scene paralyzed because when when you know Vigo can't possess the baby the first time and they move the baby, Vigo as a ghost comes out of the painting, recaptures the baby, blasts the Ghostbusters with this psychic energy wave that paralyzes them, and they're just kind of sitting in pain while. Vigo prepares to possess the child again. I think what what they kind of went for is instead of these four people being the hero of the city, they kind of went with the city being a hero for these four guys. Kind of, yeah. There was yeah, a pretty tough sure. spot, and, and until midnight struck, they were pretty much helpless. Yeah, and when midnight strikes, everybody starts singing old Lang Syne, and once again, the positive psychic energy weakens Vigo's power, and the Ghostbusters are able to break free. And you know, uh, Lewis Tully has Lewis Tully in a scene that 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 Janine finds very erotic has put on a ghost has put on one of Egon's <laughs> extra uniforms. So apparently they're the same size and earmuffs and a proton pack, and he's blasting the slime from the outside. The, you know, the positive psychic energy. The people in New York are, are helping things out, and the Ghostbusters then blast the hell out of Vigo's painting. You know, sucking Vigo back through, preventing him from possessing Oscar, and saving the day. But of course, this is before when, when Vigo can't possess Oscar, he possesses Ray temporarily. So they slime Ray to banish Vigo. It's really complicated. This is a very complicated climax and it doesn't need to be. No it doesn't. I mean I don't you know Ghostbusters is its own brand of action. I don't I don't think a fist fight would have been better, but you know, me. I don't think Ray would be the one that would get possessed. I don't think, I think Ray's a little smart in the occult to be able to... Well, you know, that's something that really... Like, bothered me. It would, they would possess Winston, because Winston has no idea not to look into the eyes. Well, well this well, this is one of things that bothered me, because early on, when they're taking photos of Vigo, Ray, just by looking at the painting, seems to get hypnotized. But, of course, breaks, he snaps out of it. And then, of course, at the end, you know, Ray gets possessed by Vigo. And it does seem strange. Like, why does this happen? Especially when Vigo makes such a big deal about getting a child. What stopped him from just possessing any adult that was in the museum? And the only thing I can think of, the only justification I can think of, is that Vigo can only possess an innocent soul. And of all the Ghostbusters... Ray has a very innocent, childlike soul, and that's what makes him vulnerable to being his possession. Right. You know, you're probably right on that. I think, especially then that that spills over into the cartoon a lot uh, about Ray being the very the innocent young, you know, innocent guy. Yeah. Well, once Vigo's once Vigo's destroyed, uh, you know, all the all the negative slime, you know, cracks off of the museum and gets sucked up into a vortex. All is right with the world. And then we get one of the weird, more surreal moments in the film. They all look at the, the the painting of Vigo, but of course, because of what the Ghostbusters have done, it's not a painting of Vigo anymore. It's a vaguely Renaissance-style painting of the Ghostbusters dressed as Greek sages, each holding an implement that, that symbolizes their function on the team, guarding the baby Oscar. It's a bit cheesy, but cute. In a weird way, yeah. It would have been more interesting if it was just a blank, the blank background behind Vigo. Speaking or, or of which, just... does it make sense when the Ghostbusters go back into uh, full force after um, the trial scene, you know, when they go back in business, why is the new Ghostbusters logo the Ghostbusters 2 movie logo? Yeah, that's well, also a rather interesting... Of, uh, 
you got two options for the meaning of that symbol. You got the peace, you know, like the hippies, and you also have the the Japanese inter- interpretation of victory. <laughs> well, where the stats yeah. right now to be. Or you could you say know? it's like the rebirth of the Ghostbusters. They're Ghostbusters 2.0, but um. I, I could see that. I could imagine, like you know, it, it being the the ghost giving the peace sign because they neutralize supernatural disturbances. I, I'd be willing to go with that. This movie does have some meta moments. I mean, we've talked about you know that the Ghostbusters theme song exists in the Ghostbusters world. It's a song that they play and listen to. We've uh, yeah, you know we've talked you about the mention of He Man. Wouldn't you have put loudspeakers on Ecto One and instead of having a siren, let it play that song as you drive to your job? Yeah, but then, like, people might have played that and, like, just to cut through in traffic. No, I'm a Ghostbuster, seriously. But, like, one of the other meta moments is, like, at one point the Ghostbusters are a little bit... I think this, this is when the Ghostbusters, I think, are being released from the asylum, if I remember correctly. This one guy's like, oh, man, you Ghostbuster, man. Man, I'm, I, I, man, I love you guys. My, my, my nephew's a big fan. Can he get one of them proton packs? And Egon just turns to him, a proton pack is not a toy. But, of course, at the time this movie was made, you know... After the uh, the Ghostbusters animated series and merchandising machine had gotten going, and by that time the proton pack was a toy and a top selling toy. Sure, I mean Bill Murray in particular did not like making this movie. He felt it was all about special effects, and um, says it's it's not very good. And I don't know if I agree with that, but overall I'd say Ghostbusters two. If you like the first one, definitely see the second one. It's still, so few films get the balance between uh, science fiction and comedy uh, right, and Ghostbusters 2, I think, uh, stands up as one of those. So, uh, it's, it's a fun time. It's universe, a sci-fi universe that also has magic. Very well put, sure. Well, that's true, although admittedly we did spend a lot of time in, in, in the last podcast, like, sort of dissecting the metaphysics of Ghostbusters and whether or not it's really magic. Would you like to weigh in on that issue, BJ? Uh, well, I, I haven't really, you know, you guys haven't released that one yet for me to hear, so I can't see. Aside from the fact that I think magic is just the interpretation of the uh, way of doing the science that they have. So instead, it's just, you know, it's very Lovecraftian, you know, with the fancy geometry that causes things that are magic. Uh, and I think that that could be, um, I, I really, they've never in the movies referred to actual magic. They do some more in the cartoons of books and spells and stuff, but um, that's for another show. Yeah. Um, any more final thoughts on the movie? I never really think you could actually see just this one. I think it, it stands well as it's on its own movie. I think that they, they do a good enough introduction to the characters and that the characters are strong enough that you can watch Ghostbusters 2 having not seen Ghostbusters. Yeah, I I gotta say I I like this movie. I I like it better as an adult than I did as a child. It is almost as good as the first film, but it's not a bad film, and and that is just a miracle to do a cash in sequel that isn't a bad film. I couldn't. Have I, actually, said it. I think if I was gonna show a, a child a Ghostbuster movie, I probably would show them Ghostbusters two first. Sure. I think it'd be a more accessible one for the kids. And then when they get a little older, you could show them Ghostbusters 1 and see how it all began. That's a good point. Um, I, I was making... and Like I said, terror dogs are pretty scary when you're little. Sure. I was making a joke they should make a new Ghostbusters movie called Ghostbuster... Ghostbusters Origins Rise of Slimer. Slimer Rises. But, 
I don't think. Uh, but you know, um, next episode we're gonna a bonus episode covering Ghostbusters uh, animated series and the recent Ghostbusters uh, video game. But before we close out, I do want to mention there has been talk of a Ghostbusters three. Dan Aykroyd's been talking about it for over a decade now. I don't. Well, know actually, I've seen some pretty recent stuff on it. Um, yeah. Harold Ramis did a little interview not too long ago about it, and um, Bill Murray's on board, but only for a certain parts of it. Like he's not gonna he's not gonna be a main character or something, because uh, once again, he doesn't like sequels. Um, it's not going to be the original Ghostbusters Go to Hell um, script that Dan Aykroyd had been working on. It's something different they're working on. Uh, that's just what I heard. Actually, um, if you want to uh, to hear something horrible, I'm now looking up the uh, press release. I'm, now, I'm looking up a press release that came out about this possible Ghostbusters 3. <laughs> Um, is it dated? Among other things, Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stepinski from The Office have been hired to work on it. But uh, give me just a moment. I'm going to look up the actual press release. It will shock and depress you. Okay, what I have in front of me, it's um, a recent rumor from the Arizona Reporter. They're thinking of doing Ghostbusters 3 in 3D. It's supposed to be a mix of the original Ghostbusters and a younger, a new team of Ghostbusters. It's never good when they do it in 3D. I found that 3D has now been a crutch for making a not-so-good movie do better. Because you can pay more for a ticket. Yes. Yep. I'm I actually, sorry. like, I went and saw, you know, I've, I've seen certain movies that are released lately. I've actually, on purpose, not seen them in 3D for that purpose, for that reason. I saw Avatar in 3D, and while I thought, um, you know, some of the 3D effects were quite wonderful... I had a raging migraine for the next two hours after seeing the film. I had one, but just because I had because I got there really late, I had to sit right in the front and look up the whole time. Oh no! With my glasses, doesn't help. Yeah. But I actually felt that Avatar was um, was benefited pretty good because it was it was subtle about the 3D. It wasn't so in your face as a lot of movies are. Yeah, they took a lot of care with the effects. Uh, Thrasher, did you show up? Did you find your Ghostbusters three bit you wanted to talk about? No, it was on the Onion AV Club, and it is not... As, as for um, is... uh, some fan movies to check out, check out Freddy vs. the Ghostbusters and Return of the Ghostbusters. They're by Braxton Films. You can find them at braxtonfilms.com. Uh, they're both very good. Freddy vs. the Ghostbusters is very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and the next one has a lot more of a Ghostbusters feel to it. Very, very cool. There's also a, a current series of uh, Ghostbusters comics that um, are out in stores. They're sort of one-shots. I haven't read any of them, but I know they're out there. Okay. I, I apologize. We're going to have to save this. Pre I cannot find the archive of this press release. I'm afraid we're going to have to save it for uh, our, our uh, bonus episode. That's all right. Um, so be sure to check out the website, SequelCast.com. Uh, email us, SequelCast at gmail.com. Check out the Twitter, twitter.com slash sequelcast. Rate us five stars out of five stars on iTunes. This is Uncle Milkshake. Thrasher. And BJ. The bathtub was trying to eat Oscar. There was a pink hose and... Oh. <laughs> That's a line in the film. That's a I don't think that was. Yes. She said no, there's that. a pink ooze. You didn't say pink hose. Pink <laughs> ooze. Oh, pink hose is what... I wrote on our Twitter feed at twitter.com. You're, well, you're <laughs> wrong. I like pink hose. <laughs>
I like Pinko's better. That's a whole other movie, Uncle Milkshake. Yeah, Again, that's that's the porno ghosts busted. <laughs>